Welcome to some very famous people you've never really heard of. Bite-sized biographies of the famous, the infamous, and the quirky in less than an hour. My name is Philip D. Gibbons, and there is more information about me, this podcast, and a bibliography at someveryfamouspeople.com. There are also photographs of many of the individuals and items mentioned in this podcast. At the conclusion of part one of this presentation, there will be additional suggestions concerning further information about today's subject, Ambassador Kenneth Taylor and the Canadian caper. And while we're at it, why don't you head on over to Amazon and pick up a copy of my novel, Is That Your Final Answer? Now let's get started with our story about Kenneth Taylor. On the morning of November 4, 1979, a boisterous mob of protesters gathered in front of the U.S. Embassy in Tehran, Iran. Such demonstrations were frequent occurrences, the result of the political upheaval that marked the transition of Iran from an absolute Western-aligned monarchy to an unaligned Islamic republic. On this day, the behavior of the crowd was markedly different, with individuals, initially mostly women, to discourage armed embassy marine sharpshooters beginning to deliberately scale the walls of the embassy compound. Some of the invaders carried bolt cutters, which were used to sever the locks securing the embassy entrance, and soon hundreds of individuals were pouring into the 27-acre embassy enclosure. This was not the first time that the American embassy was attacked. On February 14th, a faction of heavily armed radical Marxist guerrillas known as the Fedayeen i stormed the embassy successfully and forced American ambassador William Sullivan to relinquish control. But at that time, the interim Iranian secular government was dominated by traditional politicians who were opposed to such radical elements as the Fedayeen, and the occupiers were quickly expelled. By November, the Ayatollah Khomeini had consolidated power over the country, and when the students forced the surrender of the American inhabitants and refused to leave, he did nothing to remove them. Both the students and the Ayatollah declared that the 67 Americans seized during the operation would be held as hostages until the, the former Shah of Iran was returned to face trial for transgressions committed during his absolute rule. The Shah, with his government crumbling and popular support non-existent, fled Iran in January of 1979 and was undergoing treatment for cancer in New York. Initially opposed to the Shah's admission to the U.S., the Carter administration, subsequent to intervention by both Henry Kissinger and David Rockefeller, relented and allowed the exiled monarch admission for examination and subsequent radiation treatments. Carter's action on behalf of the Shah enraged the Iranian people, and within weeks the embassy was seized. The U.S. government's inability to both anticipate such an outcome and closed the embassy before admitting the Shah, 
and the misguided outlook that the Iranian government would never sanction such a transgression against international law and diplomatic immunity was the culmination of a massive intelligence and policy failure. Now the U.S. government was left without a single official on the ground to attempt negotiations with a hostile entity that refused to even meet. Luckily, there were individuals willing to not only help, but even risk their own lives and freedom to maintain fundamental principles of international decorum. One such individual was Canadian ambassador to Iran, Kenneth Taylor. But Taylor's role in providing at least a partial solution to this debacle was just the most immediate result of a lengthy, ongoing foreign policy conflict. Realistically, the attack on the American embassy was rooted in a complicated sequence of American intervention in Iranian politics and society that dated as far back as 1953. Interference by the governments of Great Britain and the Soviet Union dated back to the early 40s. Based on its proximity to the Soviet Union, its extensive oil reserves, and its strategic geographic position in the Middle East during World War II, the Allies devoted a great deal of attention to Iran and its domestic politics. The Shah's father, an army officer, installed himself as the first Shah of the Pahlavi dynasty in 1925. Openly supportive of Adolf Hitler, the Shah was removed from power by a combined British and Soviet invasion, which deposed the Shah and forced his abdication in favor of his 21-year-old son, Initially popular, the new Shah ultimately was perceived as subservient to the British, who profited through the Anglo-Iranian Oil Company, an entity owned by the British government and a precursor to the eventual British Petroleum. The extraction of Iranian mineral wealth for the benefit of a Western power became a source of Iranian popular and political hostility. This attitude coalesced around a popular veteran politician, Mohammad Mossadegh, who the Shah appointed prime minister in April of 1951. Mossadegh quickly announced his intention to nationalize the Anglo-Iranian oil company, prompting the Anglo-Iran hierarchy to withdraw refinery operatives and block Iranian oil from the world market. The resulting economic downturn was unpopular, but the embattled Mossadegh refused to waver. By 1953, the British were no longer the imperial power that could crush such a quasi-colonial upstart. But the U.S., under the newly installed Eisenhower administration, was already involved in Cold War conflicts in Korea and elsewhere, and Iran, with a viable domestic communist party and geographic proximity to the Soviet Union, was another country run by an unpredictable individual who might embrace Moscow. This and Mossadegh's October 1952 severing of all British diplomatic ties precipitated clandestine U.S. intelligence activity. By March of 1953, the U.S. government, through the CIA, was actively planning a coup against Mossadegh. This effort, orchestrated by Teddy Roosevelt's grandson Kermit Jr., a full-fledged CIA operative, initially attempted to convince the Shah to merely dismiss Mossadegh and appoint a more compliant prime minister. The Shah refused and also opposed any attempt to undermine the Iranian government, but when informed that a military coup would take place with or without his support, he relented. In early August, he signed two decrees, 
one dismissing Mossadegh, the other appointing a hand-picked CIA lackey as the new prime minister. When chaos ensued, and it appeared that the Mossadegh government and his supporters might survive, the Shah fled Iran, toughing it out in Rome's Excelsior Hotel, the CIA initially believing that the coup was a failure. On the ground, Kermit Roosevelt was not ready to give up, using both cash and persuasion to buck up various Iranian military figures and assorted street criminal elements to intimidate the government until an armored attack was launched on the prime minister's residence, killing hundreds of people. Mossadegh went into hiding, eventually surrendered, and the Shah sheepishly returned from Europe. One of his first acts upon his return was the coordination of a new, much more beneficent agreement with British and American oil interests. His direct rule, supported with copious amounts of American foreign and military aid, continued unabated for the next 26 years. While the Shah became a high-profile international political figure, his reign was marked by numerous periods of domestic unrest and dissent. Recognizing that instilling Iranian culture with progressive economic and political concepts appealed to the nationalist mentality of many Iranians, the Shah spent billions of petrodollars on literacy and infrastructure. He proclaimed his White Revolution, a series of government reforms designed to address land distribution, advance women's suffrage, expand literacy, and introduce broader industrialization. Although the Iranian economy boomed and a large middle class emerged, government corruption and hostility from the ulama, or Islamic clergy, also resulted. This in a country that was still fervently Muslim. Anger revolving around allowing female participation in politics and non-Islamic political figures gaining official access to government positions solidified opposition in the form of Ruhollah Khomeini, a charismatic imam whose fundamentalist interpretations resonated with many deeply religious Islamic Iranians. Khomeini's denunciatory rhetoric ultimately led to his arrest and eventual expulsion from Iran to forced exile in Iraq in November of 1964. For years, Khomeini remained an obscure Iranian dissident while the Shah burnished a global image as a competent, powerful ruler, fervently anti-communist and completely in line diplomatically with American foreign policy interests, the Shah seemed completely in charge of a stable, dependable U.S. ally. But beneath the surface, cracks in the Shah's absolute rule began to surface, the result of a still deeply nationalist population which hated the U.S. for its interference and viewed the Shah as a lackey and Western puppet. This animosity was also fueled by the rhetoric of Khomeini, available on cassette tapes that circulated openly via the country's mosques. Like any despotic regime that feared popular unrest, a repressive security agency was established immediately after the coup of 1953, an agency that was formed and trained under CIA auspices, specifically Herbert Norman Schwarzkopf, the father of the eventual Desert Storm commander. By the mid-60s, this organization with the title of Intelligence and Security Organization of the Country, better known by its Iranian-language acronym SAVAK, was fully involved in detaining political prisoners of all stripes. Its notorious prisons frequently utilized brutality and torture, and the organization, fully encouraged by the CIA, 
and even the Israeli Mossad became a reviled and feared secret police entity that further alienated and infuriated the Iranian population. The Shah became more and more isolated behind palace walls, his family and political associates contributing to a culture of corruption by diverting government funds and foreign aid into their own pockets. The 1973 OPEC oil embargo brought a huge increase in oil prices, a windfall the Shah used to buy acres of military aircraft and vehicles, making him the largest consumer of American armaments in the world, most likely to instill fear in neighboring governments and domestic opposition. But this wasteful expenditure, with money diverted from any effective national purpose, underlined American ties to the Shah. Additionally, by the late 1970s, as many as 100,000 people are alleged to have been disappeared via Savak and its prisons. With this entity's repressive behavior the subject of scorn from entities like Amnesty International and the Western Press, the Shah always denied any existence of such methods, an attitude that only hardened domestic opposition. By 1978, even with the advent of the Carter administration and its focus on human rights, the Shah remained an important game piece of American international geopolitics, and the U.S. government's tone-deaf attitudes toward the growing national revulsion toward the Shah only intensified the anger of the Iranian people. In a notorious incident that occurred during an official presidential visit to Iran on New Year's Eve 1978, the Shah and Jimmy Carter exchanged toasts that were publicized throughout the country. The Shah praised Carter for his high ideals of right and justice, moral beliefs in human values. Although told by local American diplomats to use restraint in praising an individual now perceived by many as a corrupt despot, the American president responded effusively by stating, Iran, because of the great leadership of the Shah, is an island of stability in one of the more troubled parts of the world. This is a great tribute to you, your majesty, and to your leadership, and to the respect, admiration, and love which your people give to you. This exchange caused a sensation in Iran, hardening anti-American attitudes, the public believing that America couldn't care less about the thousands of the Shah's victims and the political repression in Iran, and Carter's whole human rights initiative was merely hypocritical rhetoric from a cynical superpower intent on its own interests. In a country already deeply paranoid about American interference from entities like the CIA, Iranian governmental opposition began to perceive the Shah and the U.S. as one and the same. Jimmy Carter's diplomatic myopia was underlined by a fundamental failure that eventually helped to create an American foreign policy disaster. Despite an initially successful ability to exert influence and even regime change throughout the 50s, the CIA was about to add another troubling entry to a list of operational incompetence that by 1978 already included the Bay of Pigs, the Tet Offensive, the rapid fall of the South Vietnamese government, and additional future colossal disasters like 9-11 and the Iraq War. Having helped create the Iranian domestic security apparatus, Sivak, the CIA relied mostly on this agency's operatives, who presented both a biased and skewed perspective on Iranian political affairs and, most importantly, on the Shah's ability to withstand any domestic upheaval. 
Having listened to effusive praise from the U.S. and facing open political demonstrations and hostility, the Shah responded with police and military force, only increasing domestic unrest. By mid-1978, the country was gripped by both massive strikes and rioting in most major Iranian cities, much of this unrest fueled by either anti-Western attitudes or religious fundamentalism. Lurking abroad in mid-1978, Ruhollah Khomeini, now referred to with the Islamic honorific of the Ayatollah Khomeini, was expelled from Iraq by Saddam Hussein. He eventually settled in a Paris suburb, a relocation that allowed the Western press to access his news conferences and receive his declarations and generally increase his international presence and Iranian political stature. On August 19, 1978, politically motivated arson in a crowded theater in the Iranian city of Abadan horribly killed over 430 people, many of the victims' entire families, including young children. Instead of providing an official government response of sympathy and understanding, the Shah instead blamed communists and religious fanatics, further polarizing the population and adding more unrest. But even at this late date, the U.S. government had no sense of the impending collapse of the Shah, Jimmy Carter personally encouraging him to weather the storm on several occasions. In a final desperate attempt to retain power, in early November 1978, the Shah imposed martial law, actually jailing members of the government and the Iranian parliament on charges of official corruption, a practically comical assertion in light of the Shah and his entourage's long-term behavior. This desperation only resulted in an intensification of rioting and open destruction of businesses and government buildings. To the end, the American government remained oblivious to the obvious signs leading to the collapse of the Shah's government. Despite Ambassador William Sullivan's sudden and frequent warnings that only a deal between the Ayatollah and the Shah would stave off collapse, Carter and his foreign policy advisors continued to believe that the Shah could survive. In a final official act, the Shah appointed a civilian politician, Shapur Bakhtiar, as the new prime minister to replace the military government. Bakhtiar immediately announced several measures of concessions to lessen political repression and reduce corruption, including freeing hundreds of political prisoners, also revealing that the Shah would leave Iran for health reasons, but not before relinquishing millions of dollars of his own money to the Iranian government. It was too little, too late. The only popular response, more violence and destruction, the Shah and his wife fled the country on January 16, 1979. His children and close relatives already were in the U.S. But instead, the Shah initially chose to travel to Egypt and an official welcome from President Anwar Sadat. Less than three weeks later, the Ayatollah landed at Tehran's Meribad Airport, the city greeting him with a crowd of over three million people. Khomeini's political attitudes were made immediately clear. Any appointments by the Shah were invalid, the result of an illegal government. Of Bakhtiar and others, Khomeini commented, I will kick their teeth in. I decide on the government. He also stated that although he would appoint his own prime minister, his long-term intention was to construct a republic based on Islamic fundamentalism and Sharia law. 
he routinely vilified the United States as the great Satan and mocked the Soviet Union as the lesser Satan. Within days, he made good on his word, appointing a new prime minister, Mehdi Barzagan. Most members of the Bakhtiar government, including Bakhtiar, fled the country. Over the next few months, Khomeini worked on the framework of a national constitution. Eventually adopted, it named him as the de facto absolute ruler of Iran. In the absence of the Shah, Khomeini then directed national hostility towards the U.S., which made the takeover of the American embassy not only feasible, but nationally popular. The Carter administration, confronted by an utterly hostile government with no ability to acquire any military or political intelligence, and with an overall Tehran diplomatic corps either too intimidated or, in the case of communist countries, openly hostile, now faced an impossible task in its attempt to even begin to negotiate for the release of the hostages a potential indirect opportunity surprisingly surfaced in the form of a most unexpected entity, an individual. On November 10, 1977, diplomat Kenneth Taylor was officially installed as the new Canadian ambassador to Iran. At that time, the Shah's grip on power was still believed to be substantial, and Taylor's background in matters of trade was the main focus of his appointment. Canada and Taylor were intent on increasing exports to Iran and increasing oil imports. But as the domestic political situation descended into chaos and ultimately dangerous instability, unlike his American counterparts, Taylor's focus became the literal rescue of Canadian citizens and the exfiltration of even more sensitive nationals from other countries. By December of 1978, specific planning to remove these individuals was in full swing. Because many Canadians worked in the oil industry in relatively remote areas of the country, merely having them fly out of Tehran on commercial flights was not feasible. With each passing day, and with basic infrastructure deteriorating, six Canadian military Hercules transport planes were commandeered. Two focused on Tehran, the others were sent to the Caspian coastal city of Rasht. This operation, which began in January 1979, eventually airlifted 1,200 Canadians and 400 various other nationals out of the country. By early February, only approximately 130 Canadians were left in all of Iran. While Canada coordinated this orderly exit, the American embassy was dealing with the fallout resulting from the dysfunction between Ambassador Sullivan and Washington a feud which resulted in Sullivan's recall in April of 1979. He would never be replaced. The refusal of the Khomeini-dominated government to accept a new ambassador's credentials, an ominous sign for the future of U.S.-Iranian relations. After Sullivan's departure, the American diplomatic presence was led by Char d'Affaires, Bruce Langan, who wisely began to draw down U.S. Embassy staff to only a skeletal crew. Even the direct family members of embassy officials were sent home. By October of 1979, the Shah of Iran was languishing in Mexico. After Egypt, he made stops in Morocco and the Bahamas, proceeding to Cuernavaca. His doctors advised that treatment in the U.S. for an obviously seriously spreading lymphoma was crucial, but the Carter administration was wary of admitting the Shah, not wishing to worsen relations with the new Iranian government. 
But Jimmy Carter was also intent on other domestic American political matters, specifically the ratification of the SALT II Treaty, which required the endorsement of Henry Kissinger, who surreptitiously demanded the admission of the Shah as a condition of his public support of the treaty. David Rockefeller also attempted to intervene, his Chase Bank having lent the Iranian government hundreds of millions of dollars that were potentially unrecoverable. Grudgingly, the decision to admit the Shah to the U.S. was made, and within weeks, the American embassy was overrun. Very quickly, Ambassador Taylor was drawn into the chaos following the immediate aftermath of the seizure of the embassy. The actual capture of the building within the U.S. compound was not very difficult. The 27-acre open campus area, virtually impossible to defend, especially with inhabitants intent on retreating to safety until the Iranian government again intervened. Most of the embassy staff withdrew to the second floor of the three-story chancery building, newly reinforced with bulletproof glass and steel doors that could protect Americans until expulsion of any attackers could be negotiated. Unfortunately, a security officer named Al Golachinsky slipped outside of this protection to try to defuse the situation. He was taken hostage, the rioters screaming that he would be killed if access to the chancery was not forthcoming. Another officer, John Limbert, tried the same approach. He, too, was immediately placed in restraints and threatened with death. To avoid any immediate violence to their colleagues, the decision was made to surrender the chancery. This meant that most, but not all, of the American embassy personnel were now in the hands of the occupiers. Charge d'affaires, Bruce Langen, and two other American officials previously left the compound for a meeting at the Iranian Foreign Ministry. One of these individuals, security officer Mike Howland, had a radio device that could communicate with other officers at the compound. He was told in no uncertain terms to not return to the embassy. Langen decided to return to the foreign ministry where he politely but firmly asked Iranian officials to use whatever official force was necessary to remove the rioters at his embassy. He also asked for an office with telephones, a request that was readily granted by fellow diplomats. The Iranian foreign minister, Ibrahim Yazdi, appointed by Khomeini but an experienced moderate official, was en route to the ministry after returning from Algiers. Immediately confronted by Langan, Yazdi realized that the embassy occupation might escalate into something worse. He hastily drove to the nearby city of Qom and the residence of the Ayatollah, who personally told him to remove the students from the embassy. But by the time the Iranian foreign minister returned to Tehran, Khomeini broadcast a public speech praising the occupation of the embassy as completely appropriate. Although Yazdi remained cordial with Langan, he made it clear that he had neither the authority or ability to undercut the publicly stated will of the Ayatollah. He did, however, offer Langan and the other two men a suite of rooms normally used for official ministry gatherings, including a lavishly decorated ballroom. The Americans had no other choice but to hunker down and hope that the ensuing days brought a return to diplomatic normality. That evening, the Langan contingent was not the only group of Americans in Tehran not under the direct control of the Iranian occupiers. Besides the chancery and the ambassador's residence, another smaller building, the official American consulate's rear entrance, 
led into the vast area of the embassy compound. But the consulate served to provide visas for travel to the United States and had a public entrance on a small street. Initially, the demonstrators attempted to break into the consulate building, but its newly reinforced front and rear doors proved impenetrable. Inside, the 10 Americans who worked there first decided to flee to the chancery, where they thought they would be safe. But the interior grounds of the embassy was already swarming with hundreds of militants, and Dick Moorfield, the consul general, realized that this was not a feasible plan. After the break-in attempt at the front door, the rioters left to proceed to the chancery, which was already occupied. Quickly, Moorfield and the others decided that their only chance to avoid being rounded up by the mob was to sneak out into the street and hope to make it to another friendly embassy. The area directly in front of the consulate now seemed deserted. Vice Consul Richard Queen unlocked the front door and gingerly looked outside. Only a few uninterested Iranian policemen remained. Groups were organized, and as nonchalantly as possible, they exited the building. First, the Iranians who had come to the consulate to get a visa. Second, the Iranian employees who worked in the consulate. And last, the Americans. Moorfield suggested they split up into two groups. Kim King, a 27-year-old American tourist with visa troubles, figured correctly that if he was detained with this group, he might be considered a government employee or even an operative. He struck out on his own and vanished. The first group of Americans decided that the British embassy was the closest, best destination. They deliberately chose narrow, smaller side streets with few people. The other group of six, including Moorfield and Queen, chose a more direct route, but on a larger street. All men, in Western attire, they quickly attracted attention from the overflow from the embassy grounds. Very quickly they were surrounded, and one of the formerly disinterested policemen ran up and fired a pistol in the air and told the Americans to halt. The group was then forcibly marched back to the embassy, joining the rest of the now-hostage embassy personnel. Possibly because the other group contained women and was predominantly younger, the other six Americans quickly made their way in the direction of the British embassy, but once in the vicinity, they could tell even from a distance that a large demonstration was also in progress and they would never make it to safety. It started to rain, and the closest apartment of any of the Americans was that of Bob Anders. The group decided that the safest option was to head there, at least to get out of the rain and get off the street. One of the group was an American married to an Iranian, so she decided to head to her own apartment. Once situated, Anders then contacted various other Americans who worked in Tehran, but not at the embassy. When Catherine Koob, the executive director of the Iran America Society, offered to shelter the group, four of the five immediately took her up on the offer. The four were married couples, Mark and Cora Lajek, and Joe and Kathy Stafford. A driver picked them up and took them the two miles to the society building. With open lines to the State Department in Washington, the group spent the rest of the night on the phones, but then decided to head out early to avoid rush hour traffic. All four then got a ride to the Stafford's apartment. The decision to leave was fortuitous, as early in the morning of November 5th, a crowd of militants surrounded the building and eventually captured Koob, a member of her staff, Bill Royer, and an American secretary. Despite Koob's belief that her non-diplomatic status would protect them, all three were taken to the embassy 
and lumped in with the other hostages. The group at the Stafford's apartment got a start when the phone rang, but it was Vic Tomseth explaining that a car would soon be by to transport them to the British residential compound. Another vehicle was sent for Anders, and by nightfall, despite a harrowing ride through downtown Tehran, they were safely behind the walls of the British residency. On Tuesday morning, the five Americans awoke, relaxed and much more positive about their situation. This sense of well-being did not last long. Another group of alleged students had taken over the British embassy, and some of these individuals had attempted to enter the residential compound in the middle of the night. Only a loyal and fast-talking Iranian security officer convinced them that anyone of note was still at the embassy. The militants left, but the British charge d'affaires now withdrew his offer of sanctuary, believing that the American presence jeopardized British embassy officials as well. The Ayatollah eventually ordered the occupiers out of the British embassy, but not in time to help the five stranded Americans. Additionally, the government of Mehdi Barzagan resigned in protest over the embassy takeover, especially after Khomeini ignored any attempts from the Iranian government to defuse the crisis and expel the occupiers. It was clear that the situation would not have a rapid resolution. Langan and Tomseth were warned by their old-school Iranian diplomatic counterparts that the lines they were using to make local calls were tapped. Nevertheless, Tomseth came up with an ingenious solution to circumvent any attempts to listen in and locate any Americans still on the loose. He spoke Thai, and the cook for Catherine Koob was a Thai national whose wife worked for John Graves, the American embassy's senior public affairs officer, already a hostage. Graves' house was a good distance from the embassy, and the cook, Samchai Sam Shriwanetter, agreed to coordinate picking up the Americans, the British at least willing to provide car service. Although not crazy about returning to a residence associated with an American, the group had little choice. Their fears proved correct when only a few days later, Sam heard from a countryman who worked as a gardener at another hostage's residence that a large group of Iranians had shown up and ransacked the entire house. It was only a matter of time before a similar group showed up at the Graves' residence. The bleak situation grew bleaker when Langan phoned to tell them that phone access was about to be shut off by the Iranian government. They were completely on their own. Knowing that a visit from the local dissidents was imminent, the group figured that they needed to move again, relocating to Catherine Koob's home, Sam arranging a taxi ride with a close friend. Koob's house was just as problematic, right on the street, with large, uncurtained windows. The group knew this was a very temporary solution. In this desperate moment, Anders began to contact anyone he knew to ask for help. An Australian diplomat initially agreed to take him in, but balked at all five. Anders was starting to realize that such a request was practically ridiculous. Any government or individuals who sheltered the group likely to suffer harsh consequences if the Iranians uncovered such cooperation. Anders continued his quest with John Sheardown, a longtime member of the Canadian delegation, a close contact. When Anders explained his plight, Sheardown responded immediately, thrilled that Anders wasn't a hostage and eager to help in any way. He told Anders to sit tight, that he would take the matter up with Canadian Ambassador Kenneth Taylor. An experienced high-level diplomat like Sheardown, Ken Taylor was outraged by the Iranians' behavior 
considering the embassy takeover a gross violation of international law. On the spot, he and Sheridan began to put together a plan to hide the Americans in their own homes, the Canadian embassy too small and conspicuous for this purpose. Taylor also knew that he needed approval from his own government to proceed, and he immediately dashed off a cable to Ottawa. Overnight, a response gave him approval to help in any way possible, signed off on by Prime Minister Joseph Clark himself. The ride over to Koob's house via taxicab meant that the Americans didn't even have a good idea of where they were. Sheardown tracked down the British drivers who drove the group over to this neighborhood to begin with, and they were able to locate the Koob house. Two cars made their way to the Sheardown villa in an upper-class section of the city. Sheardown was watering his front walk when they arrived, a nice opportunity to anticipate the Americans' arrival that did not arouse suspicion. He quickly waved the vehicles into his garage, shutting the door behind them. Quick introductions were made, and then the group made its way inside where Sheardown's wife Zena and Ambassador Taylor were waiting. The plan was to leave the Lejeks and Anders at the Sheardown house. The Staffords would go with Taylor. The Sheardown house was quite comfortable, 17 rooms on several floors, enough space for the Americans to have their own quarters. A courtyard allowed the group to be outside in the sunshine without attracting any attention. The ambassador's residence was just as impressive, Taylor already explaining their presence to any Iranian help as out-of-town guests. All of the American escapees were eventually able to watch television and see footage of their comrades. Blindfolded, their hands bound, it was clear that the hostages were under great duress. Although spokesmen for the student dissident group maintained that the detainees were being treated humanely, actually they were all subjected at minimum to physical restraints and verbal abuse, and some, those suspected of being intelligence operatives, were harshly interrogated, beaten, forced to endure mock executions, and placed in solitary confinement in actual prison cells. Officially, the militants who seized the embassy were known as the Muslim student followers of the Imam's line, all of this group's members allegedly students at local Tehran universities. But the age of some of the male occupiers, their sophisticated weaponry, uniforms, brutality, and violent threats delivered in the first moments of the embassy attack indicated that these were not passionate idealists, but trained military personnel. The precision and organization of the initial attack also indicated input from the PLO, its head Yasir Arafat, having met repeatedly with Khomeini. Worst of all, rather than his initial claim that he did not know in advance, but ultimately approved of the occupation, the Ayatollah not only was aware of the attack, but approved of it in advance. With many leftist and even Marxist entities involved in the chaos of Iranian politics, it was probably believed that a national focus of hostility toward the United States would strengthen the Khomeini government's grip on power. For the hostages and the escapees fortunate enough to avoid actual capture, this was especially problematic because it indicated that this stalemate was not an issue to be resolved in days or even weeks but a deliberately precipitated crisis to be manipulated for as long as it proved beneficial to the Khomeini regime.
Thank you for listening to part one of this podcast about Canadian Ambassador Kenneth Taylor. Much of the information for this podcast came from the books Our Man in Tehran by Robert Wright and Argo, How the CIA Pulled Off the Most Audacious Rescue in History by Antonio Mendez. There are also additional photographs, bibliographical and musical information at someveryfamouspeople.com, as well as information about my new novel, Is That Your Final Answer? If you have enjoyed this presentation, please like us at our Facebook page, Some Very Famous People, and follow us on Twitter at Philip D. Gibbons. Also rate us on iTunes, and if you have the time, leave a brief review. A link is provided at the website.